Let us pray together. God, we do dream of building a house where love is found. We've shown up this morning in our work clothes ready to stack brick upon brick, to cover with mortar so that we too may be welcomed as we welcome others. God, we ask that you show up in this place today, that you bind us together, and that you turn our eyes towards you. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I see it in every pin that drops on Pinterest. I hear it in the clackety-clack of every cart through the aisles of Target and Costco and the mall. I, I watch it on TV as I watch incessantly HGTV and I see advertisements scroll across the screen. It is the story of deficiency, of not having enough. And I don't know if you knew this, but we all are susceptible. None of us have enough, according to our culture. This morning's story plants us in a moment with Jesus and his disciples, where we're reminded and comforted by the fact that even the best of the disciples, those who were with Jesus right then and there, need a refresher course from time to time on how to live a life of faith. In the first part of chapter 17 that we did not read, we hear Jesus emphatically instructing his disciples about sin and repentance and forgiveness. He says, whatever you do, whatever it is, do not cause other people to stumble. Call people out when they sin. And if they repent, even if they sin to you time and time again, you best forgive them. So it shouldn't surprise us that following those few teachings, we hear the disciples cry out, increase our faith. It surely is a note of panic. And if we pause for a moment to try and get in the mindset of these disciples, I think we start to hear their inner monologue that must be happening behind this exclamation. I don't think my faith is strong enough that my actions will never negatively impact someone else. I don't believe I believe rightly enough to call people out when they struggle, because I do that too. I don't think I can forgive as freely as you say I'm supposed to if these are the guidelines and the requirements of being a follower of Jesus. I'm going to need a measure more than what I have now. Increase my faith. Add to my capacity to follow and trust in God's will for my life because I don't have enough. I can certainly identify with this fear of faith scarcity that we hear from the disciples this morning of not measuring up to the expectations of the Christian life. And I would just guess that I'm probably not the only one. When one of my friends was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer, I worry I don't have enough faith to trust in God to work for her wholeness and healing. 
when I let my mind wonder about the myriad of ways that parents can give their kids issues, I worry that my prayers for guidance and direction in parenting my son aren't frequent enough or honest enough. When I learn of suffering around the world by refugees in Morocco or kids on the street in Shelby Park of gypsy men in Hungary or seamstresses in India, I worry that my inaction and my shortcuts and my looking the other way cause me to participate in the very systems that oppress and exclude. And I say, oh God, increase my faith. Because of my role here at church, I'm so lucky to be surrounded by people who do this kind of grappling and naming of the struggles we go through. One such time we have every month for our young adults is called Theology on Tap, where we gather once a month in a local restaurant and over food and fellowship talk about theological wanderings and queries. This past Thursday we met, and our topic for the night was vulnerability. And after a few moments of being shocked that anyone would show up to talk about vulnerability on a lovely warm Thursday night we dove right in to explore what vulnerability means. Why it's so hard to practice, but yet so necessary as we deepen our relationships with one another and our relationships with God. We used the work of researcher Brene Brown as our jumping off point and started with a series of of questions that she poses to begin these conversations. Question number one, what expectations does our culture place upon us? Question number two, how do those cultural expectations then affect our behavior? And question number three, if you had to fill in the blank, I never feel blank enough, what might that be? Over the course of these questions, the 25 people who were there said the same things over and over and over again. Our culture breeds expectations of perfection and success and beauty and wealth and status and consumerism and never feeling satisfied with what we have and always wanting more. And so because of that, our group members named that these cultural expectations, of course, shape their behavior, our behavior, We look in our closets full of clothes and exclaim, I have nothing to wear. We work way too much because we feel the need to climb the ladder at the corporate office. We are often unsatisfied by where we are in life and are perpetually seeking what the next big thing is that culture expects of us, whether it be a better job or more financial independence or marriage or parenthood or a bigger house or a better job. And you can probably see where this is heading, that when asked to name the things and the ways that we never feel enough, each one of us quickly fired off the following. Thin enough, successful enough, pretty enough, nice enough, outgoing enough, normal enough, pregnant enough, married enough, adult enough, Christian enough, perfect enough, socially conscious enough, enough, enough. It was as clear as day. The lofty expectations that culture places on each and every one of us has the power and does cause us to adapt our behaviors accordingly. 
reaching for those expectations, yet leaving us feeling like we never are where we should be. We never measure up. Oh God, increase our faith. And then we started talking about shame. Because, of course, shame becomes the natural outgrowth of these feelings. Brene Brown says that shame is the fear of disconnection, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are fundamentally flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. As I read this definition out, I glanced around the table to see every head nodding to see eyes downcast, to see knowing looks on faces. And it didn't take much prodding for some response to start spilling out. Shame is getting a DUI. Shame is admitting to a new boyfriend that you've slept around a lot or to a new girlfriend that you haven't. Shame is facing life-scarring demons of abuse. Shame is eating when you're sad or stressed or angry or bored. Shame is feeling like you will never experience real joy because you don't have kids or because you're not married. Shame is the embarrassment of not being smart enough or educated enough. Shame is worrying that you will die alone. Shame is ducking calls from collections agencies and ignoring the stacks of bills that threaten to unravel you. It seemed that not a one of us in that room was free from shame, and yet not a one of us wanted to talk about it. And sitting there in the reality of our shame, we can't help but cry out, Oh God, increase our faith. Jesus responds to to the disciples here, in the irritating way that he is wont to do, by saying, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a mustard seed, that you could say to this mulberry tree, uproot yourself and go plant yourself in the ocean, and it would obey you. To Jesus, faith is not something that is quantitative, that is measured by how tall or wide or deep or how much of it you can grasp, but rather faith is qualitative. Faith that is not diluted but concentrated. Faith that is like that drop of red food coloring in a vat of milk. Faith that is small but can pack a punch. Faith like a pungent mustard seed. Something that Jesus says is like the kingdom of God in and of itself. That has the capacity to give an intense flavor when added or grow quickly when planted. According to Jesus, it's faith like this that can move mountains or mulberry trees. And to him, we need not more faith. We need faith. We need to trust the faith that we have. And so how do we avoid the trap of always thinking we can't measure up, that we can't really follow Jesus, that we can't really deal with the issues we face in our life unless we have more faith or better, better circumstances in which to explore our faith. We keep reading. Our parable continues as Jesus guides the disciples towards understanding with a series of questions. Suppose one of you has a servant who comes in from plowing the field or tending the sheep. Would you take his coat, 
sit him at the table and say, sit down and eat? Wouldn't you be more likely to say, prepare dinner, change your clothes and wait on the table for me until I've finished my dinner, then you can go and have yours. Does the servant get special thanks for doing what is expected of him? This type of exchange from Jesus is jarring. And this section is one that forces us as the readers and followers to dig deeper and to sit uncomfortably in this passage. When reading about a story that keeps a servant in his or her place, we can't help but ask, is this not the same Jesus who just a few chapters earlier invited all people to the table? And said, let's clear room for those who are undervalued or poor? Is this not the Jesus that uh, grapples with the realities of the life of slavery who says, blessed are the poor. In them is the kingdom of God. When hearing about the realities of slavery, a slave whose job doesn't end when the sun sets on the fields one whose own physical and emotional needs are set aside so that the masters can be met first, a slave whose too long workday is thankless and expected. What redeeming value can we find amidst these words? I think that Jesus is asking us to radically rethink our measuring stick, how we measure. I think Jesus is calling all of us to do the work we have been assigned and to do so with the humility of a servant, to identify here with the lowly and live in solidarity with those who don't and can't measure up by the world's standards, to believe that in God's eyes we all live on a level playing field, to live out what Jesus says here in verse 10. It's the same with you. When you've done everything expected of you, say the work is done. What we were told to do, we did. To do our life's work for its own sake, not for rewards like raises or status or bigger and better toys, but because that's what's expected of us. To do so knowing and owning the shame that we harbor and using that place of vulnerability and risk and emotional exposure to create solidarity with our brother and our sister who experienced the same. When I was growing up, I remember feeling very jealous of my friends around report card time. It wasn't that they got all the good grades and I got all the bad ones, but it was that my best friend Anna got a $20 bill for every A she brought home on her report card. She even got $10 for a B, and that just was not fair. And so when I complained to my stingy parents about this, they gently told me that it was their expectation that I do the very best that I can. And if the very best that I can do brings home a report card full of A's, then that is wonderful and to be celebrated. But that's the expectation, not the reason for a reward. You may have heard that our country is in the midst of a government shutdown. Our two political parties cannot agree, and as such, there are hundreds of thousands of people in our country and around the world who are being affected by this very thing. And yet, 
I can bet my life that when the whole shutdown is over, someone is going to want gratitude or recognition or credit or probably a very nice long vacation for all the work that they did to end the shutdown. But then I wonder, do we say to Congress, yes, be rewarded for this? Or do we say the expectation is that you do your job? And because of that, that's the reality. Our culture of success and excellence and more and better does not naturally lend itself to living in the way of Jesus. Just this week, our minister to youth, Carol, wrote a wonderful article about this. And she says, Our world does not need another professional soccer player or math genius or pretty girl. What our world needs and is starving for are truth-tellers amidst a culture of excellence. We need people who can dispel the idea that one's worth must be measured in order to identify winners and losers. We need people who can measure the worth of all people through the eyes of our God who calls all the children to taste and see the fruits of the Spirit. In a world where we are measured by how many boxes we can mark off on the Great American Dream checklist, there is some measure of comfort knowing that we can't do more or be more or obtain more to live worthy of God's love. Will Willimon likes to say, you want increased faith? Then keep at being faithful. We must remember we are on the same playing field when it comes to God. As people of faith, we all share in the same assignment, the same marching orders from Jesus to love God and to love neighbor and to love ourselves, to praise God, to make disciples, to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth, to ask for only what we need to sustain us today, to repent of our sins, to forgive others when they sin against us, to ask forgiveness of God when our shame tells us that our scarcity means we don't don't measure up, to keep us free from temptation by allowing us to give up what binds us to the things of this world. These are our expectations, our instructions, our commandments for living as followers of Jesus. And when you're like the disciples, when you feel that fear creeping up that even though these expectations are clear, man, they are lofty, You fear that you'll still never measure up? I think Jesus calls us in this text not to dismiss that tension too quickly, but in the same vein, he reminds us always that his grace is sufficient for you and for me. That even in the midst of the places of our shame and sin, we are forgiven. And what better promise for our faithfulness than the grace of God that covers us, redeems us, and makes us whole. It's a pretty amazing thing to realize that for generations and centuries, millennia even, in every corner of our world, people have been seeking to reorient their lives in the way of Jesus, to measure their lives on their faithfulness to him, not on their successes or finances. This week, we celebrate World Communion, a time where Christians of every color and tongue and age and orientation and political party collectively remind ourselves of Jesus and our measure of faithfulness to God. We're also in the midst of a season here at Highland 
where we make tangible commitments of our money to the work of God through this community of faith, to do that ordinary task, to meet the expectations asked of us as people of faith. For it is as we unclench our fists that hold so tight to our dollars, our ideologies, our measuring sticks, and our shame that we're able to open our hands to receive from God, to give to others, to hold in unity, to commune, and to remember. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in living a life of humility and servanthood that our faith is made whole. Starting even today, may we reorient our lives to the way of Jesus knowing that our measure of faith prompts us into humble service and that together we experience the grace of God through Jesus that gives us life. Amen. One such way that we reorient our lives in the way of Jesus is by celebrating communion as a community of faith. We need those tangible taste filled reminders of God's grace and of our calling as a people of faith, and so we do so this morning. On this World Communion Sunday, we tune our ears and direct our eyes around the globe to the infinite ways that Jesus is being made flesh in different cultures and languages and times. This is the table of the Lord where all of God's children are invited. This table of the Lord is where we find peace And this morning we have a gift of sharing that peace with one another. And so may you stand now and turn to those with whom you worship and say, may the peace of Christ be with you. Also with you.